Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another interview with Moving to Live, where we interview people who have unique movement perspectives. We're looking at attracting listeners who are movement aficionados, if you're not in the profession, or somebody who is a movement or exercise professional. And I know I said in one of the earlier podcasts, we try to interview people who are interesting and we think are going to have good information. I like to try to interview people who not only are practitioners and technicians, but they also do what they say they do. So in other words, if you're a physical therapist and you tell clients what to do, I want to interview a physical therapist who also practices what he or she preaches. And we are fortunate enough today to have somebody who is a little bit unique in that she came to physical therapy from a running background in college. We have Dr. Samantha Wood. Sam is a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist. She serves in the Army Reserves. She also coaches endurance athletes, so I'm going to pick her brain for my knowledge. And she operates a cash-based physical therapy practice, Natural Performance Rehab, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. For fun, she's an ultra runner. She runs Spartan races, and she's taking time from her schedule today before she takes a three or four week excuse me three or four week trip up to British Columbia. So, Sam, thanks for taking time out of your schedule packing to talk to Moving to Live today. Hey Ben, yeah, it's great to be here today. So, I guess the question, one of the ways we find people is we type in various keywords on Google, or we look at LinkedIn and we find people who connect with other people. And obviously, as a physical therapist, uh, you have a unique perspective compared to many other people. But how did you get to where you are in Colorado Springs? I know from looking at your bio, you started out in Tennessee as a cross-country runner. If you can kind of take it from there and tell us how you got to where you are now. I did. Yeah, it, it was kind of a roundabout way. Um, when I was a senior at Lipscomb finishing up my degree and kind of finishing up my college running career, I started looking at grad programs and, uh, I was always pretty laid back. Um, 
so once I start something, I'm all in. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to make straight A's. I'm going to try to run my best. But I wasn't sure uh, what type of education I wanted after undergrad. And my undergrad degree was in exercise science. So I felt like I needed to kind of move on from there at some point. So actually my first, uh, my, my first plan was to go to the University of Kentucky. They had a biomedical, well, they still have it, a really good biomedical science uh, research PhD program. And I actually started up there in the summer of 2007, and uh, it was it was awesome. Everyone up there uh, in the anatomy lab was great. We were studying circadian rhythms, so I was working a lot with hamsters and hamster brains, and um, it was very intellectually stimulating. But I kind of hit a point where I thought, oh, maybe I maybe I actually do want to work you know, one-on-one with people, um, in a more social environment, but still keep some of the science, uh, some of the same topics kind of, um, as part of my education. So from the university of Kentucky that summer, I deferred my admission for a year. Um, and then I came back to Texas. That's where I'm from. And I, I stayed with my parents and I just think it's funny to tell listeners about what I did for that year, because some folks assume that, you know, if you're a hard charger, you just go straight from one goal to another. But I actually, there's not a lot of employment opportunities in Ocampo, Texas. So uh, I, I became a movie theater projectionist. And then on the side, I was skinning alligators part-time uh, for minimum wage. So that was kind of my year to reassess what I wanted to do for graduate school. Um I also did some volunteer coaching uh, at the high school cross-country team. And then during that year, I started observing physical therapists um, in the area. And what was really cool was it was outpatient, inpatient, pediatrics. So I got to see a little bit of everything. And then I, uh, I found the U.S. Army Baylor Physical Therapy Program. And so I applied to that and then started that end of 2008. And that's when I was officially commissioned into the Army as an officer. So it was, it was kind of a roundabout. I kind of, I kind of was like a ping pong ball. I was kind of bouncing around a little bit and trying to get a feel for what I wanted to do next. And when you were a uh, cross country runner or a track athlete at Lipscomb university, were you injured often? Is that how you became aware of physical therapy or how did you first become aware so that you sought out volunteer opportunities during what we'll call your gap year between undergrad and graduate? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think at the time, I I never had an injury, uh, which was awesome. Uh, You know, maybe a quarter of the cross-country team could have an injury at any any given time, and I never had anything more than very mild shin splints, let's say. Um, But I was exposed to some of the therapists. We had therapists sometimes in the training room working with other athletes. And then a lot of my classmates in my exercise science degree went to Belmont. They went straight on to PT school. And so I think just watching them, uh, you know, social media was picking up in 2006, 2007. So just kind of watching them and seeing what they were doing in school, I was like, you know, I I wasn't so sure about it. Uh, I think what happened was I I initially went the research route because I love my labs in science. So I taking genetics class. I thought like, well, I can replicate DNA. This is amazing. And so that's, that was my first route, but then seeing what my friends were doing, I thought, oh, maybe this is more practical. 
for me. Um, and I, I have a hard time sitting still. So <laughs> when I was actually in the lab working um, in a small space, I'd get a little antsy. I'd just stare outside and say, okay, what am I going to do when I get off work outside today? And talk a little bit also about the physical therapy program you went to, because most people who are listening to this are familiar with somebody who goes to undergraduate. And then I think if I'm correct now, a master's or a doctorate of physical therapy is a three-year degree where you typically go to a private or public university and pay quite a bit of tuition. But my suspicion is if you entered the army and went to the Baylor physical therapy school, that you were able to reduce your costs to do that. Am I incorrect in asking that? Uh, you're, you're correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I was skinning alligators beforehand, so <laughs> I was like a joke with people. I didn't have a lot of money saved. Um, but yeah, so the U S army Baylor, uh, it, it's a doctoral program in physical therapy. I think they switched from masters to doctor in 2006. Um, and what'll happen, you, you can be in the military and apply for the program, but they also take civilians, uh, as long as you have the prereqs and you're fit for the military. So when you apply, you apply to be in the military and then you also apply for Baylor graduate school. So would, uh, would you, at, whoops, excuse me. So would you have, if you had got, when you went through the process, was there a potential that you would have been accepted in the military, but not been accepted to the physical therapy school and then had to have another, I think the terminology is MOS or would you, was this uh, both, at the, both at the same time? This was both at the same time. Um, but that said, I mean, technically you could, you could be accepted in the military, but not in the program, but they're not going to force you to, um, you're, you're applying with the understanding that you're just trying to get into the program versus they say, Oh, you're in the military now. <laughs> so we're going <laughs> to give you this other job. Yeah. Thankfully. So you were fortunate in the military program as for physical therapy is the same three years as it would be in civilian schools. Is that correct? It's pretty close. They condense it. Um, so the cool thing is once, once you're accepted, uh, you're commissioned as a second lieutenant if you're new to the military. If you have prior service, you might be a higher rank. Uh, but most of my class was second lieutenant. And then we actually have in that program uh, folks that are Air Force and Navy, and they usually have a couple spots for Navy and a couple spots for Air Force. So our class was mixed. Um, and maybe 24, 25 people each year go through the program. So um, you go in and you have three months initially of basic officer leadership training. So you need to learn about the Army and how to be an officer. And then the school itself probably totals about two and a half years. It's not quite three years. Um, and about a year and a half is your didactic. And you do have a short internship, but it's mostly classroom work. And then at the end, you have a year internship. So you finish that. You are you sit for your physical therapy boards and pass. And what is the military the time that you're committed to in the military in return for them essentially paying for you to become a physical therapist? Mm -hmm. It's when you sign on, uh, you have about eighty one months of active duty. Uh, your school is included, though, so you have maybe roughly four years to serve active duty, and then you have at least another year of reserves, or you could just make it five years active duty, but you've got that five total years um, to make eight. So you've got three years, uh, roughly three years in school, because 
I guess in that three years of school, I'm counting the uh, officer training that you go through initially. Um, so it's it's a really it's a really great opportunity, um, and the training is is very it's heavy based in orthopedics and manual therapy. Um, that's not to say though once you graduate, you can't eventually go into a different area if you have more interest in another area. But you definitely have to focus on your orthopedic skills, your manual therapy skills initially and through your early career. And if I remember from reading your bio correctly, you also have a an APTA OCS, is that correct? Yes. And if you could explain for the listeners, so in other words, uh, Dr. Wood is not only a physical therapist, but she has a special orthopedic certification, which is above and beyond. If you could kind of explain briefly what that is for people who may not know. Yeah, the uh, so there are several different types of specific certifications a physical therapist can get. And because I'm working mostly in orthopedics, um, after you have a certain number of hours of clinical experience, and I want to say it's like 2,000, but don't quote me. <laughs> you can check it out on their website. Um, you can apply to take a board uh, board exam to be a, a clinical specialist in that area. So after, goodness, maybe two years, maybe it was a little bit over two years, about after two years of practice, um, I applied. And it's quite a long process from the time you apply. You apply maybe in a one, one summer, and then you might take the test the next spring. So, uh, And they have to check and verify that you're you've got those hours before you take the test. And I know the American Physical Therapy Association, in addition to the orthopedic uh, specialty, also have this other ones, including cardiovascular, uh, pediatrics. I believe there's a sports medicine. And I think a physical therapist has told me there's eight or nine. I guess my question, Correct. my question related to this, of course, is any, ch any plans to get additional specialties or is the orthopedic, okay, I've done that. And that's good, but I'm I'm going to continue my education, but not with the formal certification. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if I were to pu I push myself, I'd probably get the sports certification. Um, but it's I'm I work. My business partner is um, has this. He's board certified in the sports as well as orthopedics. And I, I have the opportunity to work with them pretty often. So I end up learning a lot <clears throat> excuse me, through osmosis. <clears throat> but um, actually having the certification, it's, I, I think the big thing is it's really expensive. And so you're paying for that test. You better you know, make sure that you pass that test. But I do very much appreciate the study process. And once you've been out of school for a few years, even if you read, um, it forces you to read things you might not otherwise read. And just make sure that your knowledge is updated if anything major has changed and maybe you just you missed it for whatever reason. I, I really do think those tests help with that. And then you, you need to get recertified every 10 years to keep that credential. And what what is the recertification entail? Do you need to retake the test or continuing education courses? They have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they have a lot of options. Uh, you can retake the test. Um, my business partner, I think, just recertified his OCS, and I think he's he's published like a chapter in a textbook, and he's done a lot of uh, presentations and other things like that. So I think he's actually able to get recertified through those. 
so if, other types of continuing education. So if you're an active uh, professional, not only just seeing patients, but also doing things to develop professionally, it's not going to be too difficult to maintain the certification. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it is. Um, all, part of me thinks when my recertification comes up, I might retake the test just to force myself to go through that study process. It was really, it was really good for me. Um, even two years after school, just to kind of review again. So I guess everyone's different. Most people are like, I do not want to, <laughs> I don't want to sit at a computer, you know, for hours and, and everything's resting on, you know, your performance that day as well. So you can kind of think of it like if you're doing continuing education type work, it, the pressure isn't on you necessarily in one moment, you know, versus retaking that test. So a slightly unusual, although not a typical way of becoming a physical therapist, and then I know you spent some time as active military, which was a requirement. Was there any thought of staying active military as a physical therapist, or did you know you wanted to transition into the reserves and go into private practice? I think when I first came in, um, I looked at the military as a possible career. My stepdad was enlisted, so very different types of job, but he served for 42 years in the active National Guard in Texas. So I kind of saw it as a, a long-term uh, career. And still in the reserves, I still have a lot of those career options available to me. But I think what happened, and I, I tend to be – I tend to be someone I like to learn things, but I also, I never want to feel stuck and I like to be in different, uh, see different camps, so to speak. So I think exposing myself to the civilian side, the private practice side, uh, I just felt like I would learn some new things that I hadn't yet learned in my career since I, you know, I graduate and I go straight into a military PT position and do that for four years. Um, but that's hard to say. There are some really great opportunities, um, as a physical therapist in the, excuse me, on active duty, uh, there are uh, special forces positions, uh, some ranger positions, uh, so that you can go and work with one of those units. And, you know, you can run a clinic. And there's a few other things that you can do. You can be a recruiter. You can be a company commander. So you can do things outside of physical therapy. But at the end of the day, I just felt like I needed to mix it up a little bit. Basically, my, my train of thought. We're talking with Dr. Sam Wood. She's a physical therapist and also an endurance coach who became a physical therapist through the Army's physical therapy program. Sam, when I read your bio prior to starting the interview, not only are you a partner in a physical therapy practice, but you also coach athletes. Did you coach all the way back when you were a runner in college, or how did it develop into the coaching aspect also? I just recently kind of set up a website and said, hey, I'm, I'm coaching and I'm taking athletes. Um, but prior to that, I did a little bit of volunteer work at, uh, it was post-collegiate when uh, I was basically transitioning between college and grad school. So I did some volunteer work with high schoolers. And that was probably, that's probably the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. Um, but I started the business that I had quite a few uh, club runners and they were looking for some mentorship, uh, some training programs, and just really just the mentorship of um, how hard do I push and what, how do I get the most out of my training? You know, how do, how do I get the most out of my time, especially for those working professionals? Uh, 
versus your your more elite runners that maybe don't and I don't want to put anyone in a box because that's not always true. Some of the elite runners do have day jobs and and have a lot of other responsibilities, but but for the weekend warrior, um, I wanted to kind of be able to help folks get the most out of training uh, in the, in a little bit of time, a little bit of time to recover that they have. And I assume helping them understand that just because you read somebody's marathon or ultra marathon training in one of the running magazines doesn't mean that's the program they should be following. Oh, for sure. And folks have probably heard it before, but I laugh every time I hear it because folks can get caught up in more is better. And then when you go to a race, it's not whose training log looks the best. It's who's going to perform the best on that day. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to uh, your place that day necessarily, you know, how many miles you put in. Um, it, it does in terms of your physiology and fitness, but you, you don't, you're not showing up and comparing training logs. And uh, I, I've had some of, I, I, I try to, it's so hard for people to trust themselves, but I've, I've tried to show them like I have old training logs and I can show them when I did a more moderate program, I actually performed at the same level, if not better than when I was at my max at my max training. We're going to talk more about training programs and what uh, age group athletes or other physical therapists who maybe want to get into recommending what runners do and don't do and other endurance athletes. But you finished physical therapy school and you had the active military and your first physical therapy job was as a brigade physical therapist. So I have some friends in the military and I am somewhat familiar with what brigades are. But for people who are listening to this, maybe there's an undergraduate student who says, you know, I want to go to physical therapy school, but I don't want to build up the debt that I know it's going to be. So maybe the army physical therapy is the way to go. What is a brigade physical therapist and what were your, your responsibilities when you worked as that? Yeah, a, a brigade physical therapist, so a brigade itself is, it can be different sizes. My brigade was probably closing in on 5,000 soldiers and it's broken up into battalions and each battalion has kind of a different job. Um, so it's it's a pretty it's a huge unit and it's self-contained in a sense that if you need a, a bunch of soldiers to go out somewhere in Afghanistan, you can send the brigade and it's got everything it needs. It has its maintenance, its medical, its fighters, its artillery and so forth. Um, so a brigade physical therapist, you are the only therapist. <laughs> for for 5,000 people. Thing. Correct. Uh, so it's right out of school. You know, I, I knew... Uh, I'd read about the job. They'd talk to us about the different positions we might have. But usually, <clears throat> usually therapists that start in the military, once you start your career, you, you don't go straight to that job. Um, but there was a need. And so I went and I actually met up with my unit in Afghanistan. So I didn't know anybody. And uh, the way it works is you have for each battalion, uh, and I, we had six battalions, there's a physician's assistant. And then there are some doctors in the unit, but there's not a lot of MDs. There's mostly PAs, and then you have medics. And so what you have to do, what you have to learn to do quickly, is coordinate with other providers and communicate really well and tell them exactly what you want to see and exactly what they can see. So you try to empower them to treat a lot of more basic musculoskeletal injuries and screen them appropriately so that you only get the ones that you really need to see. 
And that's a hard thing to do uh, in general, but especially in a combat environment, communications can go down. Um, and, and so it was, it was a great learning experience, um, but it definitely is a very unique job. Your direct access, you've got all these other variables coming in. So there might be somebody that was in a blast and has shrapnel. And so you're not just treating, you're trying to decide, can they stay there or do they need to go home? Uh, so there's a lot of like big decisions really quick that you end up making. Um, for those, and you're for, in charge of the, go ahead. For those people who are not physical therapists, could you briefly explain what direct access is? Direct access just means that someone gets injured and you're the first person to see them. And a lot of times, in most people are familiar with seeing their doctor for a problem and then they get a referral to, to physical therapy. And depending on what state you live in, you may or may not have direct access to a physical therapist. There are different, different laws for every state. I, but in the military, for the most part, you have the ability or at least the uh, it's as a rule, you can see direct access. I know in Pennsylvania, they do have direct access, but they're limited in the time frame. Um, I don't know exactly what it is before, if, uh, before they have to refer the patient to a doctor. So for example, yeah. if, it, if it's one month or two months, they can see the patient for one month or two months. And then if they want to continue to see them for the problem, they have to refer them to a doctor and then get a doctor's referral. Correct. Yeah. I, Texas is pretty similar. So check with your local state if you're wondering. So as a brigade physical therapist, you have theoretically 5,000 men or men and women that you are responsible for that could come and see you. And I know depending on where you're stationed or whether you're uh, overseas, it may, no day is the same. But how many patients would you see on average, say, over the course of a day? Uh, in a deployed environment, it could be, if folks are out on mission, you might end up just seeing a few people, uh, especially those that have jobs on the forward operating base. They call them FOBs for short. So if you're at a base, there are going to be some folks that typically don't leave the base just because of the job that they have. Uh, so a lot of folks are on mission. You might just see a handful and uh, I think the most I saw in one day was 20, and that was a uh, – I, I hopped on a bird and went to a camp, a much smaller outpost, and uh, I worked with one of the medics, and they were like, okay, this is the one day we're not on mission. We're going to bring in the therapist, and everybody at that, at that camp basically lined up, and I saw them for different issues, shoulder, back, knees, all sorts of things, and I just brought – you know, you kind of you kind of do have to bring the band-aids in that environment because you may not see that person again. So it's a whole different. It's almost more like sports medicine, like get them back on the field versus look at their movement. <laughs> you know, you're not doing FMS out there. You're just like, all right, slap on that brace. You you tore probably tore this. You probably didn't tear this, and you just kind of triage it. Um, so extremely varied, like you said. But um, once we get back into country it is much more uh, systematic. Uh, there might be 12 to 15 people a day type of thing, uh, but that also can vary depending on what we're doing. So you finish your military required military duty and you decide that rather than making active duty a career, you're going to go into the reserves. How do you end up in Colorado? 
My first uh, duty station was Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, here in Colorado Springs. So when I got put with the combat unit, with the brigade, um, there with I was with 2nd Brigade, 4th Infantry Division, for anyone who's military. And uh, I worked with them for a couple of years. I moved on to the hospital that's on post for a couple of years. And so I'd already kind of settled in Colorado Springs and uh, in looking at reserve positions, there, there's a medical unit that's in Denver. And uh, so I just ended up getting a spot as part of that medical unit. They used to be a hospital. The reserve is restructured now. So instead of an entire hospital with all of the personnel that you would have in a hospital, we've restructured to a medical backfield battalion. And my understanding is the main difference is we just don't have all, all of the jobs, so to speak, um, that we used to. So we're smaller, more compact, and less people. And my experience has been people who enjoy running, biking, and other outdoor activities. If they have any opportunity to live in Colorado, it's pretty difficult to leave after being there for a few years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I went to Germany and Austria in 2014. I was doing some orienteering for the Army as a, just as a sport, and I was lucky to get picked up to go compete. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm about to go to beautiful areas in Europe that, man, I really don't want to leave Colorado. <laughs> so that's when I knew that, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to leave. And I'm, I'm outside every day. Uh, I'm that person that I don't have a television at, at my house. Um, I just, I'm outside as much as possible. We've been talking to Sam Wood. She's a physical therapist and an endurance coach. We found out how she got to the point where she owns a or co-owns a pay-for-services physical therapy practice in Colorado Springs. She also coaches endurance athletes, is an active endurance athlete herself. We're going to have part two of the interview in two weeks. We're going to find out some of her recommendations for athletes, some of the tips and tricks that she's learned, and also if you're a physical therapist, an athletic trainer, or a strength coach who says, you know, I need to learn more about the demands of endurance athletics. I think Sam is going to be able to give us some valuable information. Sam, we're looking forward to talking to you in two weeks with part two of the interview. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.